Hello and welcome to the Word Live podcast, where we listen in to talks from our past events. Today we're going back to 2015 and our evening celebrations looking at the Lord's Prayer. I hope the Lord uses this to feed and grow your own prayer life. Let's listen together. Well, it's been a wonderful week. It's been a strange week, hasn't it, really, weather-wise? But one of the things I've loved, as well as obviously the amazing Bible readings in the morning, has just been going through the Lord's Prayer line by line and being reminded of our astonishing weakness and vulnerability. We really do need the Lord, don't we, for absolutely everything. In Him we live and move and have our being. Obviously, we need daily bread, we need forgiveness, but we actually need, as human beings, to worship God to say, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Just like the mountaineer needs to celebrate and exalt the dangers of the mountain, or the young lover needs endlessly to praise his true love to any and to all who will listen, just so we actually need to worship God, to hallow his name, to seek his kingdom. Otherwise, we're stuck in the the deep, dark dungeon of our own ego. And what a cramped environment that is. We become diminished and dehumanized unless we worship God. We're just engrossed in our petty desires and ambitions. C.S. Lewis famously put it like this, God finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Without worship, we are merely creatures with appetites and wants turning to God and saying, I want, I want, I want, give me. Help me to lead the life I want to lead. Do we actually believe that our Father desires us to be truly happy, and that he actually knows what it will take for us to be truly happy. What we do know is that we are fearful, wayward, and needy creatures. We're dependent on our Father for absolutely everything. Now, we recognize all those other needs, but I wonder, do we realize our frailty in the face of temptation and trial? Do we realize that there is an evil one who seeks our ruin? Now, I don't know how you feel about going home. I suppose most of us are really delighted to to be in our own beds. I was reminded last night that apparently in this session last year, I said this is the one time we say to our kids at Word Alive, don't leave your room as you found it. I'm sorry if I said anything so rude last year. And something about wiping your feet on the way out. I'm sure I never said any of those things. But some of the things we go home to, I'm sure, fill us with a great sense of foreboding. It may just be being overwhelmed by all the messages on on our answering machine or the emails. But maybe there's a failing marriage or issues with money and job, deep divisions perhaps within our church, concerns about our kids or failing health. I only heard yesterday about a guy who was our relay worker a couple of years ago, just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he'll be leaving behind not just his parents, but a wife and a baby. Oh, dear friends, we really are frail, aren't we? We need our Heavenly Father. And wonderfully, we're invited by the Lord Jesus to come to our Father and to seek His strength and His deliverance each day from the temptations and the trials that will be in front of us. 
Our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The three needs and prayers we're going to focus on this morning are these, that we should be directed away from temptation, drawn to our Heavenly Father, and then lastly, delivered from the evil one. So first of all, directed away from temptation. Would you turn back to James or look on the screen? So James makes it very clear, doesn't he, that God cannot tempt us to do wrong any more than he can be tempted to do evil himself. Instead, verse 5, each person is tempted when they're dragged away. I don't mean verse 5, do I? Uh, Let me read it from here. No one should say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person, verse 14, is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Notice the process here. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So our desire for status or money or sex is conceived. We're enticed. We're dragged away. And then if it grows, it will so easily give birth to sin. And then if it becomes habitual, it will kill us. It will be the death of relationships, the death of joy and peace and settled happiness. Now, this corruption of our lives through temptation and sin is a process we have the responsibility for and the capacity, according to Jesus, to say no to. We can't blame it on the devil. Married men, you see the attractive woman in the supermarket walking down the aisle. Just seeing an attractive woman, of course, that temptation is not a sin. But when we're enticed and deliberately go down an aisle we have no interest in, apart from being enticed by this vision in front of us, then we know the second, the third look leads to death. The only thing we normally lack in those situations is opportunity. Oh, but the devil knows. The devil knows what we're clocking. And you can be sure that if that's the route we're going down, he will provide us sooner or later. He will give us the opportunity for death to visit our lives and our marriages. Desire, after it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full-grown, gives birth to death. Men seem to be typically uh, tempted by sex, money, and power. We'll always be tempted by sex, but as we get out of our heady 20s, the desire for money and for power, whilst totally unwelcome, is strangely strong. Lord, lead us not into temptation. And as we ask God to direct us away from temptation, we've got to be ruthless with ourselves and make ourselves accountable to others, to our spouse, to friends at church. I remember when my best friend was uh, converted at university, he was really keen to start seeing a girl who, who really would not have been good for him as a brand new Christian. And he was so keen to make a good impression. I'm a bit ashamed of this, but I'll tell you anyway. He said, uh, Richard, do you know anyone who cut my hair for me? I, I want to go and see and, uh, uh, Mary, I meant to say. <laughs> and uh, I said, yes, friend, have I never told you? You know, my sort of you know, deadpan accent you know, with the toaster and the power surge stuff. Um, I said, yeah, I'll, cu- I'll cut your hair for you. I'll, I'm rather good at it. So I absolutely cropped him, scalped him, 
And he was so angry, it nearly led to a fistfight. He was really deeply angry. Um, but he didn't go to see the girl and eventually married a, a lovely Christian girl, happily married, blah, 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 blah. So <laughs> we do need to make ourselves accountable. Even if you don't have extreme friends like me, we, you do need to be accountable. And Satan's earliest words of temptation are still his favorite. He's not very original, is he? He doesn't need to be. His first words are, has God said... Where is the single verse in the Bible that says you shan't go out with a non-Christian? Has God really said? Has God said that you shouldn't spend all your time and money and energy on that? I don't think so. What do you mean you'll surely die? You won't surely die. There are no consequences. Just be a bit dishonest in business. Just flirt a little bit with the married man or woman. No, God said nothing about that. Come on, chill a bit. God, what doesn't want you to be miserable? According to James, death is gradual but certain. But you know what? Being directed away from temptation isn't enough. I was talking to a friend two days ago here at Word Alive who told me about a non-Christian mate of his at university. This is an astonishing story who um, went and got plastered after, that's drunk, by the way, uh, went and got plastered after uh, playing footy with the university team and came home and, for no apparent reason, opened up his laptop and weed into it and absolutely destroyed his laptop. I do apologize to the signers. Um, (laughs) Sam is very discreet. <laughs> At least I didn't say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> That's brilliant. Anyway, said student felt really guilty because he was a dyslexic student and had been given this laptop by the university, explained his situation to a friend who said, look, I will loan you my laptop, But next time you go out on the razzle, you need to hide my laptop far away so you're not tempted. It's not lying around. So anyway, he was fine for weeks. But uh, a few weeks later, he did go for a a big drinking session. But beforehand, he hid his friend's laptop high up in a wardrobe um, and put loads of things in front of it. Of course, you've seen the floor in this arrangement because it is only his drunken self. It is the same person who's going to come back later. And sure enough, he did, hours later, and was avidly looking for his friend's laptop and did exactly the same thing to his friend's laptop. And and this is really weird, but he felt terrible about this. And he tried to make do with not having a laptop. He obviously paid his friend back. Eventually, he had to go and buy a third laptop. And he said to his friend, he said, look, next time I go drinking, I want... I'm going to lock this away in this strong cupboard. I want you to have the key. And however much I employ you, please don't give me the key. Perfect. Foolproof. That day came. Came in really angry that he couldn't find his laptop. Remembered it was in the cupboard. Even more angry he couldn't open the cupboard door. So he got tools and broke open the cupboard and did exactly the same thing. The, the moral of the tale is we'll always find a way to do what we want to do. And if we keep doing the thing we want to do, it will become habitual. It's probably not going to be something as strange as that. But sin has that capacity to entice us, to draw us in. And then, of course, 
it kills us. That isn't enough, which is why we have the second point. Yes, we must ask not to go down a route of temptation, but we need positively to be drawn to our Heavenly Father, point two. James finds himself here defending his father's character and goodness to his Christian readers. In verse 13, don't say that God is tempting you. He can no more tempt you than he can be tempted himself. And then in verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So James is saying, look, God isn't tempting you. Uh, God is on your side. It's so easy, isn't it, when we do get into habits that start destroying our lives. We start blaming God. Why is my life such a mess? But it is not God. God can be trusted. We can believe he is a heavenly father, even during the time of testing. But can we? Why does he seem to test us? Maybe we're just his lab rats, and he's the celestial scientist. Oh, let's see what happens to Eve when I let the serpent into the garden. Oh, dear. Bad move. You shouldn't have done that. Or I wonder how Bill gets on when he's away with work and staying in a hotel with adult channels on the TV. Oh, dear, Bill, that's so disappointing. I'm now going to have to turn my back on you and remove my joy and my peace from me. What a shame. You haven't withstood my trial. Is that what God is like? Well, James says... When tempted, no one should say, no one should say, God is tempting me. That every perfect gift is from above. God has no dark side. There's no shadowy side. He is the father of lights. And James readers, going through times of trial and temptation, were tempted to blame God, to lose their trust in God. Just turn with me for a second, will you, to Luke chapter 11. I don't know what you do these days with all your electronic gizmos, but flick something and get yourself to Luke chapter 11. And it's the Lord's Prayer. You'll be pleased to know. And Jesus' disciples have said, Lord, teach us to pray. So he gives them an outline prayer. Obviously, it's far more than that, but he gives them the Lord's Prayer. He then tells them this really interesting story from verse 5 uh, about a man who's asked for hospitality. Somebody's banging on his door saying, look, I've just got someone turned up at my house. I've got nothing to give him. Will you give me some food or I'll be embarrassed? And even if the guy is not disposed to get up out of his bed and to provide food, surely he's going to do so because he keeps hammering on his door. And Jesus is saying, even if you think God is reluctant, which he is not, he is not reluctant to hear and answer our prayers, but even if you think he is, keep asking. Because at least by your persistence, he's going to answer, isn't he? But Jesus knows that he still hasn't got to the heart of the problem as to why we don't pray. Then he tells them this strange story, and this is from verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Strange. Which of you fathers, if your child 
your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is saying here that prayer is actually not about just asking for stuff, but it's about trusting God our Father. So we ask for him. We ask for his Holy Spirit. We ask to be in communion with him, just as Jesus prayed where he actually is center of our lives. But we're afraid of that. Why? Because we simply don't trust God. I mean, can you imagine uh, your son asking you for a tropical fish? And so you get the tank of water here, and you've got a bag. And you say, hey, son, just your five-year-old boy, reach your hand into this placky bag with water in, and that lovely tropical fish, you can pick it up in your hand and quickly put it into the aquarium. And the trusting child puts his hand into the plastic bag, not knowing that there's no tropical fish, but a venomous sea snake right at the bottom of the bag. He puts his hand in and is bitten and dies in pain. That's what the story's saying. Or imagine you uh, fathers, your daughter on Christmas, uh, Christmas, on Easter Sunday, on Easter Sunday says, oh, daddy, can I have that painted egg you promised me? Oh, yeah, the painted egg. Yeah, you can. Look. Now, a scorpion, when sleeping, is egg-shaped. And instead of offering his daughter a painted egg, he offers this sleeping scorpion. Look at these markings. Aren't they exotic? Never seen markings like that. Oh, thank you, Daddy. And trustingly, she takes what she thinks is an egg, but it's a sleeping scorpion. She takes it in her hand. And as soon as she takes it, the scorpion wakes, and in its fury stings her and makes her ill and shocked. So what would you think of fathers who did that? What, what conclusion would we come to? Well, they're evil. There is no other word, is there? They would be evil. And Jesus is saying, compared to God, you are evil. But even you as evil fathers know how to give good things to your children when they ask, whether it's fish or, 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 or an egg or, or, or bread. You give them good things. Why don't we trust that when we come to our Heavenly Father, that He knows how to give us even Himself, even His Holy Spirit? We're asking to be delivered from the evil one. But deep down, we suspect that it might be God who is going to ruin our lives. You see, Satan seems to offer what we want. He understands our dreams and desires, the money, the lifestyle, the ease, the thrill, the comfort. God's far more likely to ruin our lives because he's always telling us not to do the things we want to do. You ask for a husband or a wife and you imagine God's going to give you somebody really unsuitable. You want a songbird, you get a shrew. Send you to a country that's too hot where you can't digest the food. But it's going to do you good. It's going to do your soul good. No, no, no. We evil fathers know how to give our children good gifts. How much more? Milton, when uh, he wrote Paradise Lost, was accused by Blake of being more fascinated by the devil. Listen to what one commentator says. William Blake voiced a thought that has been troubling readers almost since the poem's publication and has dogged it ever since, noticing that books one and two okay, which are talking about the devil, are rather more absorbing than book three, talking about God's victory. 
Blake concluded, the reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God and at liberty when of devils and hell is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. Whatever Milton's intention, and Blake here concedes that the effect was not deliberate, the power of the poetry glamorizes the figure of Satan at God's expense. Shelley went further. Ignoring the theological constraints of Milton's framework, he considered the divine and the diabolic as literary characters and decided that Satan came out rather better. What a shocking temptation to think of God like that. Lead us not into temptation. We really can trust the one who allowed his son to also be asked to be delivered from evil. Father, please deliver me from this hour. Let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. And that loving father answered with a deafening silence and allowed his son to go to the cross for us. For us, God so loved that he gave. Having given us that gift, how much more will he give us life and happiness? C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, first ever Christian book I read, absolutely essential reading on temptation. The senior devil, uh, Screwtape, says to the junior devil, Wormwood, it's on this whole subject of, of te- temptation to think that God is going to ruin uh, his life. He said, the Christians find that apart from silencing this clamor of self-will, when they are most fully the enemies, that's God, when they are most fully the enemies, they are most fully themselves. They are most fully themselves. So how do we overcome temptation? How do we find ourselves drawn to our Father? Augustine famously said, Lord, give me chastity, but give it to me tomorrow. And he knew that for as long as he said that, he was not truly following the Lord. He tried cold showers, he tried to do everything his godly mother told him to do, but it was only when he found he feared God and he desired Jesus more than he desired his immoral lifestyle, he knew that that was the only chance he stood. In Greek mythology, we read about sirens. They were the mermaid-like creatures who lay out on the rocks of islands and tried to trap Sailors who would hear their beautiful song and steer their ships towards the rocks and be grounded, and when these sirens would actually then devour their flesh. Two people in Greek mythology got past the sirens. One was Odysseus, who said to his sailors, Look, I really want to hear their song, so lash me to the mast, and whatever I implore you to do, don't do it, because I'm going to tell you to go to the rocks and stuff up your own ears with wax. And so that's what Odysseus did. He heard the song and he longed for it. He longed for it, but only constrained by the actions of his friends. Ultimately, of course, we do what we want to do. And what he wanted to do was to hear the song of the sirens. The only other person who got past the sirens was Jason and his Argonauts. And with the help of uh, uh, Hira, um, he enlisted... um, um, I'm trying to find who it was who sang the beautiful song... Here we go. He enlisted Orpheus, and Orpheus played his lyre so beautifully that Jason and his men paid absolutely no attention to the sirens. There was a more beautiful song. 
Thomas Chalmers, sometime of St. Andrew's, Scotland, wrote about the expulsive power of a new affection. We experience that at conversion, don't we? We're so in love with Jesus. We're maybe a bit over the top, but those other things that, that clamor for our attention just are not nearly so beautiful. So what keeps us Christian now? What keeps me Christian now? Good habits, accountability, absolutely crucial. Great means of grace. But ultimately, we will do what we want to do. How do we make sure that what we want to do is what is right? We need to be captivated, once again, don't we, by the Lord Jesus Christ. We need that heavenly music to be more beautiful than those temptations that entice, that lead to sin and ultimately bring death. So, directed away from temptation is a great prayer to pray. To be drawn to our Heavenly Father is a great thing to cultivate as we go through the Lord's Prayer. And then lastly, and quickly, we need to pray to be delivered from the evil one. I think this is perhaps the most alien of the three petitions, isn't it? We can imagine ourselves saying, Lord, please steer me away from temptation. I know that's a real challenge for me. Or, Lord, please help me to fear you and love you more. But can we easily daily hear ourselves saying, Lord, deliver me from the evil one? It does, to our ears, sound slightly alien. Not so amongst many African Christians. I was out uh, in South Africa a couple of years ago, and in fact, just bumped into Hugh and Rachel Eiley. Uh, Well, Hugh Eiley last night is here with Rachel, used to be on UCCF staff. And they were doing a work in a township uh, in Kailisha, called Kailisha, and a church there, Church of England in South Africa. It's a really uh, uh, run-down part of the Cape Flats. And here and Rachel said to me a couple of years ago, said the striking thing about the local Christians is they love the church, they love the Bible teaching, and they find it's great for getting them to heaven. But when they face struggles and they're worried about evil and they feel that the evil one is really giving them a time of trial, they feel that the church doesn't have much to offer and so they go back to folk religion. Well, that shouldn't be the case, should it? C.S. Lewis suggests that the devil's cleverest two ploys are to either remain irrelevant and undetected or to create a fascination in him. I suspect we're more in the first category, don't you? Conservative Western Christianity easily overlooks the New Testament teaching about the devil. Now, forget the, 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 the horns, the cloven hoof and pitchfork. The biblical view of the devil is that he is a very real person. He's intelligent, powerful, ruthless. He poses as an angel of light, but really, he is a prowling lion. Vicious, powerful, bloodthirsty, hungry, and uncompromising. He is a formidable foe, and we should ask for deliverance from the evil one and all the evil he's brought into this world. I was taking a mission at York University a few weeks ago, and had the privilege of working with a great jazz band. And on the last night, I was chatting to Joe, the saxophonist. I said, Joe, I don't even know your story. And he said, oh, Richard, I haven't actually been a Christian that long. I had a pretty rough background. He said, I was, I've only been a Christian 15 years, and from a teenager, I was addicted to alcohol and to drugs. And when I got into my early 40s, I contracted hepatitis C, which I knew meant I was probably going to die quite soon. And I was very, very fearful. And one night, I had a dream. And in that dream, the devil came to me. 
And he said, I had no Christian background. I had a lapsed Catholic mother. I knew about God and Satan, but that was about it. In that dream, the devil came to me and said, tonight, sorry, tomorrow night, tomorrow night, you and I are going to meet. And I will fight you, and I will kill you, and I will take your soul from you. And he just woke up in a cold sweat, just did not know what to do. And the next day, he was seeing his sponsor, who happened to be a Christian. He was a secular counselor, and he just blurted out his story. And the counselor said, you must not, you must not agree to that fight. Satan will destroy you. But he said, I have to. What choice do I have? He said, you don't have to, because Jesus has already fought him and defeated him. You need to cry to Jesus for forgiveness and protection. And that was his conversion. And he, from that day onwards, has never stopped praying, Lord, deliver me from the evil one. Deliver me from drugs. Deliver me from alcohol. But we don't easily find ourselves praying that prayer. And I must admit, I hear stories like that and think, oh, it's so exotic. But that's really not the sort of thing that goes on in ordinary, everyday life. Well, maybe it's not. But the devil is a roaring lion. He is an enemy. And we need to pray daily for, his, for God's protection from him. Some uh, two, three years ago, my son, Ash, uh, having gone up to university in St. Andrews, became quite unwell and had to come home. He really loved being at St. Andrews. He took a first in his first year in theology. He was very naturally good at it, but due partly to a tropical disease he'd picked up in his gap year, he started getting out of proper sleeping patterns. And he had to retake his second year. It was a really difficult time. He, he was getting panic attacks. He was getting depressed. And then some really terrible dreams started. And Ash has given me permission. I've never shared this in public before. But in these dreams, um, the devil would come to him and would very much oppress him. And in every dream, Ash would end up killing himself in his dream. And, of course, he woke up in a cold sweat, not wanting to go back to sleep, knowing sleep not getting enough was the problem, but surely not sleeping is much better than this appalling thing. And Ash had no suicidal intentions. He, he loved life. He wanted to get better. He wanted to finish his degree. But one night, uh, he had this dream. And he woke up with a start and realized he wasn't actually in bed, but he was standing on the edge of St. Andrew's Pier, looking down into the deep, dark North Sea in the middle of the morning, wearing nothing but his pajamas. You see, friends, we have an enemy of souls. And Ash obviously realized he needed to come home. One of the things he started doing was to gather scripture verses and prayers that focus on the Lord's deliverance from evil. And we started saying the office of Compline. It's night prayers in the Church of England. For the nonconformists here, it's not a milky drink, Compline. But it's a, for the under 50s, Compline is a milky drink, just so we're all, we're all communicating with each other. And it's a selection of prayers that seek the Lord's deliverance from the dark and terrors of the night. And it was a really wonderful time, those next couple of weeks and months, as as a family, we said Compline. And Ash called upon the name of Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, 
We know that demons and devils fly. And was wonderfully delivered from that very oppressive attack. Obviously, he went to the doctors. Obviously, he continued to get himself better and trying to get exercise and sleep. But you know, the devil does, at times of trial and temptation, such as that sort of mental uh, illness, he does seek to destroy. He is a very real enemy. And we need to cry to him, cry to, to God, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. So there we must wrap up. We are crying to one who actually made peace through his blood shed on the cross. Colossians 2.15 says, he's taken away the written code, cancelled it by nailing it to his cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Since our situation with Ash, Ruth and I have repented many times of our proud, conservative, Western self-sufficiency that only values a good education. How terrible that our son hasn't finished his university degree. Well, we were disappointed. Ashley was desperately upset. But you know, the Lord has taught us so many lessons. And I don't know what you face as you go home. Maybe you're raw from bereavement. As I said, failing health, worries about your children. You know, the Lord will direct us away from temptation if we cry out to him. If we can be drawn to him, we can fear him and love him in equal measure and delight in who he is and all he's done in Jesus and cry out to him to deliver us from the evil one. We can face whatever is lying in front of us when we get home. Let's just bow our heads, shall we, in a moment of quiet. Gracious God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that there's no area of our life that's too small, that you're not interested in. We do ask, Lord, that all those besetting sins, those weaknesses, that you would direct us away from them, that we would become more accountable, we would know the means of grace amongst your people and our families, that you would help us to make practical steps as we go home, not to walk down the aisle that second time. And Father, we do pray as well that you would help us to cultivate a delight in the Lord Jesus as we read your word each day, as we see the kind of father you are. You are not an evil father, but you will, if we ask, give your Holy Spirit to us in greater measure. You will fill us, and we can draw near to you in prayer. And Lord, would you please deliver us from the evil one this day? to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2015. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to local communities in the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.